All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. My name's Paul Yock. I'd like to say hello on behalf of the Biodesign uh, program. A couple of announcements to start out. First of all, we are uh, audio recording this uh, for an immediate uh, iPod release, uh, so you guys are going to be rock stars. But uh, what that means is I'd like you to join me in turning your cell phones off uh, or to buzz. Uh, second announcement, so this is our 10th year uh, in biodesign. We're having uh, several uh, uh, high-profile events like this one tonight. And there's another coming up on April 13th, uh, Undersecretary Capos, who's the head of the patent, uh, USPTO patent office, uh, is going to be here. And uh, we're going to be putting to, uh, together a program about medical technology uh, patenting. So uh, we'll send out an uh, announcement to the Biodesign list, but just uh, make a mental note of that. Um, I want to uh, have a couple of thank yous in advance of this session. Uh, first of all, to Wilson Sonsini and PricewaterhouseCoopers for uh, sponsoring the event. Uh, and then to uh, David for uh, taking the time to come out again and do another, uh, what I'm sure will be My an excellent uh, series. He's, we're testing David tonight with, with four, uh, four uh, folks to interview, so it's going to be a high-velocity interview. Uh, and I think uh, with that, we should hand it over to David. Great. Well, thanks very much. Can you hear me in the back of the room? Is my uh, mic on, Scotty? Great. Well, you know, uh, what I would say is, as, as Paul says, we've been doing this for 10 years and, and for almost as long, uh, not quite as long, but almost as long, it has actually been, uh, been a hope of mine to be able to tell the foundry story because I think uh, the collected uh, wisdom and experience of the folks on this stage is phenomenal, and they've really been a major force in technology development um, in our space. Um, and the fact that they've had two, at least two monster hits in the last couple of years um, certainly justifies hearing the story they have to tell. I'm going to introduce them, although I think probably most of you know, and then we're going to get into the story of the foundry. But on uh, your far right, my far left, is Hanson Gifford, Mark Deem right next to him. Hank Plain, Alan Will, and uh, we thank you guys for coming and, and finding time in your schedule to share the story. So I know that there is uh, a connection around a company called DVI, uh, and also that the foundry was founded in uh, the late 1990s, 1999. Alan, it was your idea from the very beginning. Talk to us a little about how the foundry, which I guess is kind of the model for what the foundry does, went from conception to an actual actual entity organization. What were you trying to do? What were you thinking you were going to do when you were thinking of founding the foundry? Well, I guess uh, the idea started as I watched some uh, pretty uh, masterful folks like uh, Tom Fogarty and John Simpson and Rod Perkins and others early in my career as they uh, founded companies and um, had long thought that it, it would be uh, a valuable Thing to create, to be able to have an entity that took ideas not only that were internally generated but also externally generated and then bring them, turn them into companies and take the products to market. And um, so it took me quite a, quite a few years to get around to it um, from when I first met Tom in 1986. But uh, in, when I was leaving Anurex in uh, 1998 and thinking about what I wanted to do next, I uh, decided that 
what I'd like to do is really pursue this idea and take on more of a mentoring role and be involved in multiple companies. And one of the first things I did was figure that I needed to have absolutely the best people I could have to work with because that's what makes these things successful. And that's why I pursued Hanson Gifford, who was at Hardcourt at the time, and did everything I could to bring him on board and then Mark Deem and Hank Plain. So, Hanson, let's turn to you then. You were at Hartport at the time. Uh, what were you doing for Hartport, and what made you decide that it was time to do something else and that the foundry is what you wanted to do? Uh, at that point, uh, first of all, thank you, David, for this, and it's just an honor to be here. Uh, I was at Hartport having you know, one of the best jobs I can imagine, which was leading a great team, 60 people in R&D, uh, given the simple mission of uh, figuring out what minimally invasive heart surgery meant and making everything that was needed to, to make that happen. And uh, it's just an incredible experience. But uh, as that business came to market, it's clear it needed to, uh, to evolve somewhat uh, structurally. And Alan called me. And uh, my first thought was I could imagine 15 different reasons why the idea of an incubator wouldn't work. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't bring in ideas, wouldn't make financial sense, whatever, but the chance to work with Alan again was uh, enough of a draw. Figured uh, with, with him there, we'd, we'd uh, make something work. Mark, you were next. When, what, what grew, where were you just before you joined the Foundry, and what did you do with the Foundry in the beginning? Uh, well, just before joining the Foundry, I was out uh, doing some consulting. Um, I'd worked with Mark Foley to help get uh, Ventrica started up. I was working, uh, doing a little bit of consulting for uh, Miriam Ron over at Incube and had just had a few different rounds of uh, working in startups and outfitting labs and things. At the time, uh, the foundry was in uh, uh, Hanson's uh, side building at his house <laughs> in Woodside. Um, there was a tilt-up shell uh, that they had rented, uh, but nobody had time to do anything about it. So they literally hired me as a consultant to open the doors at the foundry. And uh, once we got everything outfitted over there and the doors were open, they realized that the building was still empty, so they had to keep me. <laughs> <laughs> and Hank, you came a little bit later. When did you join? And again, what, what did you see as the opportunity? What did you see as the, as the uh, uh, motivation or the incentive or, or, or as what you wanted to do to coming to the foundry? So I was coming off of a, a great experience working with John Simpson uh, at, at Perclose as a CEO. We just sold Perclose to Abbott. And Alan uh, and Hansen approached me to join the foundry. So it was an opportunity to come back together with the team. I originally uh, started out as 50%, and, and that grew over time. But it also gave me the opportunity to do some other things. Uh, worked with, with Josh Macauer, with uh, Transvascular and, and Declarant. Worked with Fred Ashravi at EPI and Access Closure. So it's, uh, I've had a good experience working with multiple incubators. But my role at the foundry grew to, you know, essentially a full-time job and then some. In the beginning, did you guys have all separate, distinct roles? Did you have separate, distinct expertises and capabilities? How did you decide who was going to do what? Was it an issue of each of you pursuing different projects, or did you have did you choose one project and, and take on defined roles? Hansen? I think it, it, it kept evolving uh, over time. You know, if, if I was busy on one project, then. Mark would take on the next. Uh, uh, Hank uh, served as CEO of, of several of the companies uh, as, as he joined the foundry and then rolled into a chairman role, which, which was 
very effective in making sure the companies got off to a great start. Thank I think you. it's true in a lot of startups, you, you're a jack of all trades and you do whatever is necessary to make the company successful. And I think we've all played various roles at different points in time. Uh, perhaps with Hank and I, uh, not playing the role of inventor very much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think we've, we've tended to gravitate to our fields of expertise, but I think we've always contributed where it was necessary. Hey, Mark, you Mark and Hanson have, have definitely evolved into the CEO and chairman of companies over time. Uh, my lab notebook is still bare, <laughs> so I've not followed them into the uh, invention mode. So where did you, uh, in the beginning, uh, imagine your ideas would come from, your projects would come from, where did they come from? And let's talk about the very first project that came out of the foundry. Where did it come from and, and how did it come into the foundry? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I just stepped away from Hartport and uh, a cardiologist, Fred St. Cor, right here, who uh, had uh, <coughs> taught uh, a lot of surgeons how to uh, place catheters and helped us develop the catheters at Hartport, uh, came, to, uh, came to me and said, let's take that technology for percutaneous aortic valve replacement from the, uh, out of Hartport because uh, Hartport had been formed to develop that. They had migrated uh, into a minimally invasive cardiac surgery company, but that technology was still there. And uh, I told Fred, gosh, that would be, that's a great project, but, but that's going to take 10 years. <laughs> and for our first project, I don't want to do a 10-year project. So he said, oh, well, and came back four months later with the idea for e-valve. He had just seen a patient whose mitral valve had been clipped in the middle, and I said, sure, that'll be, that'll be simple. Just put a clothespin on the middle of a mitral valve. We'll get that done real quick. So, uh, While it's beating. <laughs> and of course, the irony is that PBT yeah. exited well before eval did. Uh, you had to point that out. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. So how many projects were you working on in the first year? And I know that you had one other project during that first year. What was that second project? Mark, that was your, that yeah, kind that of came was, uh, your ballywick. Yeah, Concentric Medical working on a, a suite of interventional neuroradiology projects. The, the central, centerpiece of it was around a uh, clot retriever uh, for ischemic stroke. It was technology that uh, I'd worked on previously that was invented by a physician out of UCLA, Pierre Gauban, and we had the opportunity to, to pick up that technology and then to sort of build a, uh, another interventional neuro company around that. Now, how did you fund the initial projects or the, the work on the initial projects you were doing? And what were some of the initial issues that you would deal with? I know you guys told me that IP was critical. But, but in those early days, what was, what was your vision for what eValve and Concentric would do within the context of, of the foundry? What was, the, what was the, the, the role of the foundry as far as you were concerned? And what was the limit of what the foundry would not do for those organizations? Well, I don't think we had a defined length of time that the projects would dwell within the foundry. We didn't go into it assuming, well, the, these projects will stay here for only six months and then they'll leave. And I think we've always had sort of an organic view on that and that as the projects got to a point where they were on their own and capable of standing on their own and perhaps too much for us to be doing, they should evolve out of the foundry. And that's, that's really how things have, have moved um, throughout the life of the foundry, and we, we had initially raised about $3 million, so there was only so much we could do. <laughs> and it turns out we took on four projects over that period of time and spun out four companies, but uh, 
they each were at different stages, I think, when they got financed. And when they got financed and had a management team that was capable of uh, moving along, those management teams, much like children, I think, wanted to get out of the nest and move on. Talk about the initial financing of, of these organizations. You know, we're in a very difficult time now. A lot of entrepreneurs are experiencing trying to raise capital to keep their companies going. But it, it, it's easy to forget that you could find no more difficult climate than 1999, uh, 2000 for raising capital in the medical device space. How did you, how did you fund those projects initially? And Alan, you, I'm going to turn to you because you told me that there was a kind of three different models that the foundry has gone through over the course of the last 12 years. Sure. So initially, that $3 million, the, the first, what we initially divine, uh, uh, defined as Foundry One, uh, the 90% of that was the money came from serial entrepreneurs. So they were friends, angel investors, et cetera. 10% um, of it roughly from uh, law firms and, uh, and venture capitalists. And um, that, that worked fine, uh, but we found ourselves sort of at the end of a project trying to pitch hard to get the venture funding to come into uh, the company. And so we then evolved to a second model where we allowed the venture uh, funds to have more skin in the game right from the start, thinking that um, we wanted them more aligned with us from the beginning. And we added a third venture investor because we had lived through the dot-com era where one of our venture investors was less active mm -hmm. in medical devices. So we thought adding a third would be smart. And, uh, and then eventually we evolved to a model where we uh, became serial, where we uh, established the entity of a new company, uh, incorporated it, and then got it financed from a couple of venture uh, funds, and then figured out what we were going to do with it. But we evolved to that third model only after we developed the credibility where people believed that we could come up with the next idea. Mm -hmm. Well, does it get easier as, you, as you've gone through the years with the Foundry to finance or fund new companies? I mean, I think if you talk to serial entrepreneurs, they will tell you that it's somewhat of a myth that an organization with a, or a person with a track record finds it easier. Has it become easier over the years as, you, as more and more companies have come out of the foundry to, to do that serial entrepreneurship and funding of companies? Well, I think we, we get a hearing, and uh, it, it has gotten a little easier. But uh, uh, you, know, you mentioned 1999 when everyone around us was talking about making you know, 100x your money in 10 weeks. Uh, and uh, going, the out there, going out there pitching a, a paltry 5x in three years, which was the standard <laughs> for the medical device industry at that point, right, uh, wasn't, wasn't getting any attention. Uh, so it was tough then, and it's, it's challenging again now to, uh, to get new, new projects started. But, uh, yeah, you, shockingly, you make it, the, uh, you know, it may be easier to get in the door, but the actual trench warfare of doing the pitch and the diligence hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. You were going to say something? Uh, just, I think, you know, you get the benefit of your credibility, but I think that the funding climate sort of outweighs a lot of that often. So for the first couple of years, the Foundry had a pretty consistent track record of starting a couple of companies, uh, two companies per year. The first year was actually a, a good year for you guys. It was Evalve and Concentric. What did you do in 2000? What were the two companies that you started in 2000? Well, they were first to file, which was our third company, and uh, then uh, Emphasis Medical. So I'd be amazed if, uh, I would not be amazed if a lot of people here knew Emphasis. I would be amazed if anybody here knew first to file. What was first to file? Well, 
First of File was a, actually our only venture outside of medical devices, and it was brought to us by Jeff Granger, who's a patent attorney, uh, who was trained at uh, Townsend and & Townsend, then subsequently uh, was a counsel at Hardport with Hanson. And he came to us with an idea for automating uh, the patent filing and maintenance process. And probably I'll turn to Mark and let him explain in a little more detail because the, the idea grew significantly over that time. Right, we started with the idea of, of or Jeff started with the idea of doing a, uh, an online provisional patent filing where you know, pay a couple of bucks, do your invention disclosure, and, and boom, it's filed. And we, um, you know, having been deep in the patent process, we, we sort of knew that there was probably a lot more that could be done there. And uh, so we started brainstorming about what else you could do, and it evolved into actually um, a pretty uh, extensive software workflow package that had an internet front end. But it basically automated everything from the inventor to the patent office. We were one of the first groups to get um, to, to be granted electronic filing status with the patent office. And um, so it, it, was, it, it was quite an adventure coming from medical devices to starting up an IT company. Mm -hmm. And emphasis with the second company founded in, in 2000. Where did that idea come from? We uh, <coughs> came up with that internally. Uh, emphysema is still a really uh, poorly treated uh, disease with, with not great options. And uh, we just set out to learn everything we could. And as we understood it, started to uh, propose new ideas. And uh, one day, Mark said, gosh, if we're trying to get the air out of the lungs, because really, in a way, the problem with emphysema is you can't exhale. So get the air out of the lungs, but not back in. How about a one-way valve? And uh, we tried it in some sheep, and it worked. So what was the difference between starting a project internally and finding someone like Fred who would bring something to the outside? And, and did you, over time, develop a, a preference for one model versus another? How many of the subsequent projects that, that um, uh, the foundry has taken on were internally developed ver based on the expertise that you guys were developing at that time? versus things that came to you from that side? The, uh, the, the germ of the idea uh, has been about 50% outside, 50% inside. At the end of the day, they are all a mix, because even if the idea comes from outside, we take it, work with it, and, and evolve it, hopefully, to an even, even better place. And uh, <clears throat> also, if, if we come up with an idea, we go out and identify every a uh, bit of IP that's in the same area and try to acquire that and, and work with those folks. So. We take a pretty broad view of what, it, what intellectual property is as well. So instead of just looking at a given patent for what it has, what it says on its face, um, we tend to look at it uh, from a perspective of what can we make it if we own the prosecution. So could we take this, this piece of intellectual property and, some, and somehow take the, the, what's there and mold it into something that's really protective of what we're trying to do or blocking of what we think somebody else might come in and try to do. By the time we get to 2001, 2001 actually has two of the most interesting companies to come out of uh, Foundry. And, and I say that not just because neither of them worked out, but because I think they had two of the most interesting sets of technology. And we'll get to those in a, in a moment. That's Satiety and Extent. But as you looked at the first couple of years, maybe from 1999 through 2002, 2003, um, were you learning anything? Was the model changing at all? Was your approach or process changing at all? How, how is what the foundry was doing in 2003 different from what the foundry was doing in, in 1999, if at all? Well, I would say at the beginning, we were just trying to, to make it work at all, uh, to, to, to prove that you really could 
have an incubator that, that created ideas, brought in ideas, and got real companies going. And a few years into it, we realized that that, that was working, so how could we make it better? And we started to evolve the model, as Alan mentioned, and, uh, and to spend a little, uh, little more time thinking through what were the key issues and making sure we addressed the, the true challenges of the project head on, rather than rushing into prototyping devices and testing and so on, which is often very valuable, but, but often not necessarily the biggest challenge. I think the other thing that we learned too was that the challenges that we faced as we had multiple companies going at any given time caused us to change um, how we staffed. And uh, in 2003, we started to bring on EIRs. Denise Aarons was the first, uh, uh, or one of the first, you know, true EIRs that came on to work on, uh, on Ardian at that time, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of the, the big successes. And um, it also changed as, you know, the thing I think that is the biggest misnomer about Foundry is that it's an incubator that implies that the, it's the idea generation, um, which is obviously a key component of a successful company. But, you know, this team is involved in, in these companies all the way through to ideally sex, uh, successful exit. But, um, uh, you know, the, the team continues in the, in the early days, this is the team along with Kara Liebig, the, the um, um, uh, director of finance at the company, and they staff up as need be, but it, it's taken this team's involvement all the way through to get the companies to a successful exit. You, I think that was, we really began to appreciate the impact of that and the burden that comes along with it. If you look at eValve as an example, uh, you know, Farrell and Powell, Hanson, Gifford, Fred, and, and I have been on that board for, I don't know, 10, we're on the board for 10 years, 11 years by the time we sold it. You know, so it was a, it was a tremendous undertaking, took a lot of effort from, from day one through, and I think we, need, we, we appreciated the impact of that. And so that was one of the reasons why we evolved to bring in entrepreneurs and additional, additional help. And I think also we started out initially in the first few companies thinking we were going to do two projects at a time. And we pretty rapidly, after the first four companies, decided we were going to do them one at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was, I think, a, a much improved model of focus. Well, talk about those early days, too. In particular, how long did, for instance, Eval and Concentric, your first companies, stay within the shell or within the context of the foundry? How quickly did you kick them out to, to become <laughs> their, own, their own companies? I think at one point we had, was it four or five companies? Yeah. Uh, under the under a very small roof in in South Redwood City, uh, it was the dot com era, and literally there were no open buildings in the Silicon Valley, <laughs> and you know landlords wanted ten percent equity coverage. It was just crazy. Um, they did. They did. They wanted stock. They wanted five bucks a foot for a, an ancient Quonset hut, claiming it was <laughs> Class A space. It was. It was. So I think at one point we had about forty five people in a in a four thousand foot space, it, we were you We know, literally built benches. mezzanines on top of the lab and conference room <laughs> space uh, so that we could add desks on, on top of the, the spaces that were already built out. And, and when I say we, I mean literally we were like swinging hammers. <laughs> so it was a little Well, it seems to me that one of the things that must have evolved for you as these companies stayed within is that your skill sets had to change. I mean, you guys were the, Alan and Hank, you were the business executives, you guys were the engineers. But it must, after the first or second year, 
no longer really have been about the technical challenges of, of, launching, of launching these companies, but really about a host of other issues, financial, raising additional capital, um, uh, the regulatory issues, the commercial launch issues. Uh, talk about how that process changed for you. And, and, and Hank and Alan, were you naturally drawn to those things and left the engineering to those guys? Or did you all share in those responsibilities? How did you guys get up to speed on regulatory issues and, and financing issues and, and, and those kinds of things? Well, you know, I think in, in terms of getting up to speed, I can remember, you know, back at DVI, Hanson, every, everybody in the company helped write the regulatory filings, right? I mean, so I think often in those days, you, you were getting steeped in multiple functions. You may not have been the expert, the internal expert, but you were involved. And I think as, you know, we ran companies and as you guys were involved in companies, you know, you learn, you observe what, what's key and, and as you learn, you apply those techniques. So I think we, we all were not shy about contributing and we felt, we always felt, I think one of, the, one of the real strengths here is the team's been comfortable enough with each other that we can call bullshit on, oh, am I allowed to say that? You can say that. <laughs> uh, we can call bullshit on one another, you know, and we're not shy about doing it because I think that's what really makes, makes these companies successful is, mm -hmm. is, is, is not being shy. And yeah, it's one of the keys that we've really uh, tried to work at is to create an environment where there's enough trust and respect amongst us that we're, able not only to be creative, but also to be critical and, and end up le getting to better answers, whether that's on a regulatory filing, a patent application, you name it, to, to, to really intensively. Uh, well, how did you deal with disagreements or, or conflicting perspectives or viewpoints within the group? Did you stick at it until you fought until somebody just gave up? Did you have a process? Did you vote? How did you, if, if a project came in, or how did you decide to, that you're going to follow Hanson's idea rather than Hank's idea? Was that always a given? Did you always just follow Hanson's idea rather than Absolutely. Hank's that, idea? Fortunately not. Absolutely not. That, yeah. yeah. No, we followed Mark mainly. But, uh, uh, you know, you just keep talking it through. And again, just like when we have an idea and we bring it to, you know, have the idea of emphasis and bring it to pulmonologists and they say, you can't do that, you're gonna kill the patients with pneumonias. Well, okay, let's, let's look behind that and figure it out and, and keep working at the problem until we get answers. We can resolve one person's uh, uh, you know, issues. We're not and, very good at taking no for an answer and yeah. with one Neither another yeah. uh, or with outside input. And um, so when, when we run into that opposition, we'll try to listen to it, but then pick it apart. And uh, typically the response is, well, the opposition ends here, so I'll just go around the end of it and, and figure out the next way around. And we do that with each other, and we do that pretty, pretty rapidly. Well, I know each of you assumes roles, or has assumed roles at various times, as chairman and CEO of the companies. Does being elevated to the position of chairman or CEO give that person greater say over where that company goes or what it does? Hank, when you ran Extend or Satiety, did you get to call what was going on there? Or we did you defer to him religiously. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it has a, a marginally more important role than other board members, but I think it's largely symbolic. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's how do you operate uh, as a team and, and with the rest of the, of the board members, and if you have to use your power position to, uh, to drive a decision, that's probably the... Uh, uh, the wrong decision. So 2001 is, was, again, an interesting year 
you, you took on both satiety and extent. And I wonder whether you guys can talk about where those ideas came from and, and what, what appealed to you about those, both those technologies. Extent in particular was extremely innovative uh, at that time in a space that was getting extremely hot, drug-eluting stents. How did, how did that come into, into the foundry? Well, Extent was a, a concept that was custom, uh, customizable drug-eluting stent, and it was essentially targeting complex coronary artery disease, and uh, it was a, a, a big idea. Um, we knew going in that it was going to take several hundred million dollars to, to get it to uh, fruition. What we didn't anticipate was uh, post some of the uh, late thrombosis issues with drug-eluting stents that have largely uh, gone to the background, that the FDA was going to dramatically shift the goalposts of what was required. Um, and then we had taken the company public, and when we took it public, we, uh, the, the new investors knew that we would be back for additional money to, uh, to run the, uh, the pivotal study. So two things happened. One, it took us about uh, two years longer than it should have to get the IDE trial to begin the, uh, the U.S. randomized trial. And secondly, uh, we, we went into the financial meltdown, which meant that, that of venture funding of 2008, which meant that, venture, or that public funding uh, of, uh, of companies that were at that stage just weren't going to happen. But it was really unfortunate because that company had incredible clinical data with, you know, with over uh, two-year follow-up out of Europe. And if you look at the adverse event rates uh, with, with Extent, they were much lower than the standard of care with other drug-eluting stents and overlapping. So it's an it was an unfortunate outcome. All we wanted to do was to be able to get the approval from the FDA to run the randomized trial to prove the benefit. And we, we couldn't get that done. So it was you know, one, of the, uh, one of the big disappointments. Just to come Will back to the, to the moment of founding for a moment, uh, <clears throat> for, for Extent, uh, one of our uh, uh, favorite cardiology advisors came to us and said, listen, guys, you won't believe it, but the restenosis rate for drug-eluting stents isn't a little lower or a lot lower. It's, it's zero. And that got us to thinking, my goodness, that is, that is a revolution, and how can we contribute to that? And so we can't remember actually what else we were working on at that point, but we just stopped that and, and focused on, on trying to figure out what that meant and how we could change it. And the first thought was, gosh, if you can eliminate restenosis for metal stents, then maybe you can eliminate restenosis for absorbable stents. Mm -hmm. And after looking at that for six months, uh, we felt like that was too big a research project. And the next step was, if, if people can eliminate restenosis, then they're gonna do multiple stents, long stents, and that's going to be awkward in the current single small stent mode. And so let's figure out how to enable multiple flexible stenting uh, for those complex lesions. Now one of the differences between Extent and some of the other projects that you guys have done is that by the time you got into Extent, the drug and stent market was already significantly uh, invested in by the large companies. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Boston and, and Johnson and Johnson were, were right there with the first generation stents. Was that at all an influence in your decision? I mean, obviously you decided to pursue it, but it was the one space where you guys have gone head to head against much larger competition with much greater resources. How, how much was that a, a, an issue for Extent in the early days? 
You know, I don't know that we looked at that as a deterrent, I, because I think we, we looked at it and we said, all of the current stents in that market were optimized around the types of lesions that stents started out in, which were short, focal, you know, focal lesions. Um, and we said, you know, the technology's focused in here, but the market's going here. And how do we get one step ahead of where the large companies are? And I don't think it's ever scared us to think we could outmaneuver a large company. So that, in fact, we thought we would be at a place where they'd want to acquire the technology because they'd figure it out at some point and naturally gravitate to us. But isn't it that most of the projects that have come out of the foundry have not gone into the kind of sweet spot where the large companies have played? Maybe Concentric did as well. But if you think about satiety, think about Ardian in particular, um, even when Eval was starting, this was not a space where the big companies were making large investments. Was that ever a conscious part of your strategy to, to, to find, in effect, kind of orphan opportunities, not orphan in terms of size of the market, but ones where there wasn't tremendous amount of investment by the large companies in those spaces, or did you just go wherever you thought there was a great idea? I think you, we, we wanted to go where the large companies wanted to be, mm -hmm. because ultimately you need to believe that you have an exit opportunity mm -hmm. for the venture investors. So we needed to be a place where the large companies either played or we were on the periphery of where they played and they would need this technology. Um, I, you know, maybe we didn't hit anything head on in terms of technology where they were already playing and dominant, but I think uh, we... Yeah, I think one of the things that are common among a lot of the other examples, the non-extant the non examples, are we were going in areas where surgical results already existed. and. Um, that was an area you asked where, where the satiety idea came from. We just we studied every every version of bariatric surgery that was out there, and we picked some that we thought had good results that, with low complications, could be a, a viable clinical solution. And we kind of went after that. And even um, even Ardian, uh, sort of the 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 turn the turnkey moment for us uh, that took it from, you know this is a research project, stop talking to me about it, <laughs> to let's go do this was when we found the old surgical results. So Ardian is actually a good example. It's arguably been your most successful company to date. How did Ardian come in? That was a 2003 project. And renal denervation was not something that a lot of people were talking about in 2003. <laughs> Why did you guys just run in the opposite direction and say this is just insane and no one's ever going to do this? Uh, actually, we, we did run in the opposite <laughs> direction for about six months. We were looking at a uh, number of other projects, and uh, for one reason or another, they kept dropping out. And Mark kept saying, you know, there's that renal denervation project. And I was like, can't do that. That's a research project if I ever saw one. And one of the rules I set when we started the foundry is we aren't going to do research projects. <laughs> and uh, uh, we started to run out of time and kept finding this additional information and said, well, why not? So we took it on. So one of the things that's characterized, I think, the, the um, foundry over the course of the years is to have had some outstanding CEOs post the involvement of you guys. Farrell and Powell's here, so is Andrew. What's not to say that you guys aren't us? outstanding, but <laughs> Thanks for I think we can understand when the success one. of these companies uh, hit. Um, <laughs> Hank, you want to talk about your satiety? No, I'm like, we'll talk about that later. Uh, Where did you find these guys? What were you looking for as you looked at the kind of foundry companies? How did you identify who you wanted to uh, turn, this, turn this project over to? And Farrell might be a great example because she's someone you turned eValve over to, and, and she went with it for the rest of eValve's run and, and even into today. 
She is a great example. She did a terrific job there. You know, I, I think you always, um, w one of the ideas we had at Foundry early on was that uh, we would be able to build great teams. Now, that has proven itself uh, over time, I believe, and that's not so much to our credit as it is to the teams, that uh, the people around us. This, you know, if, uh, if we were to thank everyone, this would be worse than the Academy Awards, <laughs> you know. We'd be naming hundreds of folks, because it's really these companies have been made successful by the teams we've built. But one of the advantages we have is by playing the initial CEO or the initial VP of R&D, like we do, it gives us a much longer window to recruit. And as opposed to other companies where you might, if you need a CEO, you've got to hire a CEO mm -hmm. in two months, we might be able to stretch that to a year. And a year gives you a lot more time to find the right people and the best people. And we've been lucky enough to do that in many cases. Farrellin came from, she actually worked with us at DVI. Uh, she was a director of R&D uh, in the DVI days, so we had known her there. A lot of times it comes from the extended network. This is a very small community. I think we all, we all know that. And um, so you try to find the best and the brightest. And Andrew, as a regulatory guy, were you trying to match specific skills to where you, the challenges that the companies faced, or was it simply a matter of finding someone that you thought really could take this organization forward? Well, Andrew started consulting with, with Ardian uh, initially, and mm -hmm. the, um, the team you know, fell in love with him and recognized that the challenges of, that Ardian faced was largely going to be clinical. You know, the technology was relatively straightforward. There weren't any questions about, you know, was there a market? Uh, but the, you know, the big question was, could you execute on, on uh, a, a clinical trial that would prove safety and efficacy in this enormous market? And you know, at, just to broaden Alan's point, I think when you, you know, we're getting the, the credit for these companies today, but I think the credit really belongs with the teams at each one of these companies because they took the projects, and yes, we were still involved at every step along the way, but it's the teams that uh, we seeded often with people that had been successful with us in the past, and then they took it to a completely different level. And, you know, Artie and I think is the poster child for that, that, you know, we, we, we recognized it was a big opportunity, but we also recognized that, the, that uh, delivering on the promise was not high probability. So, you know, turning it into the successful exit that it has been and, you know, a, a paradigm-changing technology for the treatment of hypertension you know, the credit really belongs with Andrew and his team. Before we move on to some broader issues, you guys did one thing that was also very interesting in the mid-2000s, and that, which seems, I don't know if you would call it a detour or an experiment, and that's Foresight Labs. Talk about that. I mean, it was a brand new clinical space for you guys. It's a different model for what you guys were trying to do. How did Foresight Labs come into the foundry, and, and how, is it, how does it function within the foundry? So, and maybe uh, explain what it is before. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, the Foresight Lab story started uh, a few years earlier when we were looking at a uh, project which was a retinal implant for uh, individuals with profound blindness. And as we did our, our diligence on that project, we were directed uh, by Bill Link to Gene Dewan, who was uh, <coughs> a serial uh, inventor, serial entrepreneur, and also head of retinal surgery at, at several major universities. And uh, uh, Gene <coughs> was a, a, a great resource for us in, in sorting out that project. And while he was 
eager to help in every way he could, he also persuaded us that that was a 20-year project, which even if we were willing to take it on, our investors probably weren't gonna, gonna hang with it for 20 years. So we, we actually were close to funding that project and turned around and said, you know what, let's, let's not fund it. And uh, a few years later, uh, Gene, who at that point was uh, head of retinal surgery at uh, USC, had just sold one of his uh, startups and wanted to spend more time uh, doing entrepreneurial things, creating new opportunities for, for ophthalmology. And Bill Link steered him towards us. And we didn't want to direct the foundry itself permanently into ophthalmology. And so we said, great, why don't we try to create a duplicate of the foundry, really, uh, clone ourselves and, uh, and focus that group solely on ophthalmology. So uh, Angela McFarlane, who has been she was at the foundry as chief technology counsel at that point, uh, emerged as the obvious leader. Uh, they've brought in some other great folks, Kerry Reich, Yair Alster, and so on, and have put together just an all-star team. They're now starting their fifth company, and uh, great things are happening at Foresight. Why didn't Gene Dewan just start his own incubator? Why, what, what was the benefit to him and his team for doing within the context of the foundry? I think it started out as a one as a one shot deal when we first started talking with Gene. Um, you know, he was interested in in getting an incubator going. We wanted to be helpful. Um, we were very interested in ophthalmology uh, coming up the curve. You know, we we looked at a few different things in that uh, in that space, and you know, one thing kind of led to another, and we just decided we the foundry was at that point in its one company at a time structure. And we thought, well, this should be easy to replicate that structure, team up with, with Gene and with Versant on this particular project, and then you know, they'll sort of be set up and on their own, and then we'll kind of go back to our, our, our day jobs. And uh, it just worked so well, and the teams meshed so well that we just kind of never left. I mean, we, we, we really are you know, two sister incubators and share a building, and it's been a great story. So Foresight is an example of ways in which the the foundry has changed over the years, evolved over the years, but it's also evolved because you guys are individuals and you have individual histories and, and plans and ideas. Alan, you actually left in 2002 and Hank, you left in 2007. What did it do to the chemistry of the foundry? What did it do to the process of the organization? How, if at all, was, the, um, was what the foundry was trying to accomplish changed by the fact that you guys had stepped away? And how would you define how, would you define how your roles changed once you stepped away from full-time involvement. And I want to begin with you, you were 2002. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it's pretty critical that, you know, we've, we've all worked together from, by now, 20 to 25 years. And I think we've developed terrific relationships and a great, deep respect for one another, which is partly, yes, Hank, even <laughs> you. Um, well, well, in almost every case, yes. <laughs> You know, but, uh, but you know, I think that's what has allowed us to challenge one another as strongly as we have on ideas and companies and strategies, et cetera. And I think that's really allowed us to be successful. It's contributed to our success. Uh, and we can, we can walk away from those uh, very rigorous, vigorous discussions, uh, you know, as, as close friends. Uh, so I think naturally, you know, I left because I thought it was going to facilitate, to try to develop closer relationships with venture groups to get the companies funded more easily. We were doing it at that time. It seemed like we were raising money virtually continuously, either a Series C at this company, a B at this company, and an A at this company, uh, that we needed to 
try to facilitate that financing process. And so that was part of my thinking. How did the chemistry change? You know, I think our roles changed a little bit in that I now had fiduciary responsibility back to my limited partners. But on the other hand, we were putting the money in right from the start when we didn't know what we were going to do. So the minute you sat down on NUCO, whatever it was, nine, you know, we all put our shoulder to the, to the mill and you know, worked to try to make the company as successful as we could, try to create the best entity we could, which is really the same thing we were doing on and on and on you know, in, in the past. Was Split Rock's relationship with the foundry, did that precede your, your uh, arrival at, at Split Rock, or did, did you go to Split Rock because of that relationship? Uh, no. Actually, uh, you know, I went, it was Split Rock's predecessor, St. Paul Venture Capital, <laughs> that I joined, and uh, St. Paul had invested in the E-Valve, Dave Stassen had invested in E-Valve, and um, that was sort of the uh, germ of why I joined um, St. Paul. But they weren't uh, involved in the seeding of the businesses prior to that. Uh, Morgan Thaler, on the other hand, where Hank went, had been financing uh, Foundry uh, in our seed stages. So Hank, why, why did you leave? And one of the things is that you actually had worked on other projects and, and involved with other companies, McLaren Access, a bunch of others, during the time that you were at the Foundry. Was that ever a source of tension or, or an issue? Why didn't you bring a Clarent within the Foundry or access closure. Talk about how your career evolved. Yeah. Mark's laughing here. Like apparently, I've well, it's, it's one of the interesting here. things yeah, I, I think just about. Josh would have led us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that may have been. Would have been all for it. Yeah. Why didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of the interesting things about uh, the the um, Bay Area incubators is you know how well these teams get along. Uh, I've had the good fortune of working with with Josh on two projects and Fred Shravi on on uh, three or four. And you know we're really close with with Bill Starling, so it's uh, I think it's one of the things that really makes this industry fun is that you know you can uh, you can work but not really truly compete. So um, when I uh, left the role in the foundry in 2007, I was on I think seven boards at the time, and the reality was that my role at the foundry had changed. In the early days, I was the interim CEO of the companies as they would come out, or at least rotating between Hanson and Allen. Um, so there was a point at which I just didn't have the time, frankly, to be an effective interim CEO. I, had, um, I brought Robin Bellis and Morgan Thaler in as an investor in the foundry in the summer of 2000. And uh, Robin and I overlapped on six boards. So it made sense for me to transition uh, into the role. And to Morgan Thaler's credit, it, um, they didn't ask me to step off of the, uh, the boards with, with Josh and Fred because they looked at that and said, that's a great relationship we want to continue to nurture. So Mark Hansen, did, 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 to your mind, did the foundry change when, when these guys left? Did you find yourself just even maybe psychologically calling on them less because you felt they had created some distance, or did that? Did you not feel the change that much? Yeah, I, I they wanted they more distance, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> it took us a while to convert Hank's office over. Yeah. That was our chance to move without telling him where we went. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, to this day, are, are communicating daily on, on so many different issues at different companies that uh, there were some, some subtle changes, but, but mostly the, the collaborative working together 
has, has, hasn't changed at all. So, so uh, I was going to say, for, from my perspective, um, you know, it, Alan mentioned earlier uh, the ability to, you know, work with, with Tom Fogarty and John Simpson and those guys. For me, you know, the foundry has been that sort of, a, of an opportunity. And so through the years, as these guys ended up gravitating more towards venture capital and, you know, more towards board members, it's allowed me to learn from them uh, and to change roles uh, gradually over the years to be, you know, sort of more uh, than just the technical resource. So it's been a great learning experience, and I, you know, I, I credit them with a lot of that, too. So we're here because in the last two years in particular, you've had a, a couple of really outstanding uh, exits, Evalve and Artie, and most uh, notably come to mind. Um, and I think one of the characteristics and one of the things that's always characterized the foundry is the, the daring and the, and, the, and the scope and the, and the kind of ambitiousness of the technology you guys took on. I mean, whether it's Extent, which didn't work out, or Ardian, or, or E-Valve, an early play in Mitral Valve. But the reality is by the time you got to about 2006, you guys were seven years into this. You hadn't seen an exit. Did any of you ever at that time begin to say, maybe we just are doing this wrong, or maybe this was not right? Certainly to a certain degree, the, the world had changed on you. But did you ever doubt yourselves? Well, I think the world doubted incubation. You know, there was a point at which, um, you know, with a number of the incubators, there were questions about were the returns really there to support incubation. And, um, uh, you know, the, in the last two years with, you know, a Clarence success at, uh, out of ExploraMed and Fred's con continued success with, uh, with Incept, and Evalve and Ardian, um, you know, all of a sudden the world has changed in how they look at, at incubation and the returns. And the thing that I appreciate about, you know, this team and, and incubation in general now that I'm in the venture capital role is unlike deals that get referred to me from the outside where I maybe have, you know, 45 days to come up to speed on the physiology, the clinical challenge, the, the um, uh, regulatory clinical path, uh, competition, et cetera. On incubation, you're doing that, uh, you know, over a nine to 12 month period. So it doesn't make us perfect. We've had our failures. There's no question about that. But I think we do go into these projects much better informed about what the challenges are. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have a, I mean, you know, I, I, we were just talking to the biodesign fellows before and, and talking about how to, how to pick career path and so on. And, and one of the things that was unanimous is it isn't actually uh, so much about making money. It's about the chance to, to create a, a new way to help patients, to bring together a group of people in a company that uh, makes something special happen uh, together, to, uh, to, to be creative, to have that spark of a, of a new idea. And uh, that is, is really fun. And, Perhaps in about 2006, I was starting to think, well, maybe, maybe none of these will ever hit. I, I personally always felt that there was huge value in the companies that we were creating. But, uh, but you felt that way about Extent as I, well, even though. Well, I did, yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, you, at some point, you get a little zen about it and say, that's, that's fine. You know, I think, there, David, we always, we always sort of thought inwardly about what we were doing and could we do it better. So I think we always tried to improve the model as we went along. And certainly there were times where you looked at it and you went, gosh, you know, how long is it going to take to make some of these companies successful? But I think 
as Hansen points out, I, I, you know, everybody in this room would probably echo this comment that I don't think you could pick a better career than being in the medical device industry and certainly in the startup medical device industry where we're pioneering innovative new technologies. And I mean, heck, I remember my father was one of our first double vessel atherectomy patients. Mm -hmm. Where do you get the chance to do something like that in your career? Mm -hmm. So the, the it's what that, we do. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, uh, not to draw any comparisons to him, but Thomas Edison said he didn't invent things to make money. He made money so he could keep inventing things. Mm -hmm. Mark, uh, did you have a comment about that? Uh, oh, no, I mean, I, I think during that time period and even to today, um, just what we do is we're always looking forward at the next thing and we're always working on the next thing. I mean, when Artie and when it was announced, you know, we were out doing preclinical studies on another, on another project. You know, Hansen's running one right now, I'm running the other. And, you know, there are long, dark days, but the reality is that you're kind of always looking forward, and so there's not a whole lot of time to... There's long, dark months. David, <laughs> <laughs> I think the nature of being an entrepreneur is really that you, you, look, at, you look at things and you figure out what you, you believe that you know how to make something successful. You know you can do it, and you're, you're always looking for the ways to make it successful, not the ways it's going to fail. I think it's key to think about the way it's going to fail, and you usually get told that many times by venture capitalists along the way. But you know, I think being natural, being operating guys and coming out of industry, you were always trying to figure out the way that it could be successful. Well, there are some common themes to why companies are failing in today's climate. One, which you pointed to extent, is the F, is the regulatory challenge. Another is the financing challenge. Let me turn that around and, and point to two notable successes, which are RD and an eval. Uh, um, any kind of lessons that you guys took away from that? Is there, is there a formula, or, or are the successes as unique and as, as different as the, the failures seem to be? I wish I could predict which ones were going to be successful and which ones were going to fail. <laughs> you know, if we could, we'd, you know, we, we wouldn't be batting whatever percent we are. You know, I think you got to hire the best teams you can, the brightest people around you, be creative about how you tackle the challenges and, and always be aware of how the, the environment around you is changing and, and react to that. I think Ardian was an example of how we did that and went OUS on uh, clinical studies in a strategy that I think was absolutely key to the company's success and the ability to raise money at high valuations. That was in reaction to the market changing and the FDA changing. So Ardian is a great example of a, of a, of a, a great success in this space, and I think uh, you know, certainly something that a lot of companies look at and say that, that's a phenomenal thing. A couple of months after the Ardian deal was announced, you guys announced that you're shutting down satiety. How, one of the principles of incubation is to fail fast. It's to see what's there and to kind of get rid of it. How hard was it to shut down satiety? It's not like you did it a couple of months after. What, what led to the satiety shutdown? How hard is it to shut down? And as you think about something like Concentric, which I know you guys have high hopes for, uh, that's something that you might have shut down. You know, again, that's going back a dozen years now. Talk, talk about companies shutting down companies within the incubator model. So it's always painful, and especially when you have great technologies that you know you really see that they're providing a, a patient benefit in a in a uh, in a big market. I think uh, Satiety is a company that. Um, you know, we did the right things in, in getting patient experience before we entered the U.S. market. 
there are differences when you move from a registry to a sham controlled trial that was required in the U.S. So we didn't have um, as strong uh, a uh, um, um, treatment arm as what we saw in the European patients. But that said, the company did hit their their uh, endpoints. Um, and you know what's changed is the FDA is you know establishing an enormously high uh, burden on companies in the obesity space. Uh, you know it's it's um, uh, you know we it, it's a whole nother panel to debate whether that's <laughs> right or not. But uh, it's just the the cold hard facts. And you know it's a company that would have required you know significant additional financing, and that's tough to do. Uh, in this environment. Well, they go hand in hand, the financing and the regulatory, because so many venture capitalists today are worried about the current regulatory climate. But how much of it, how much of the challenge today is the financing risk? Is finding venture capitalists to, for deals that are late, that are that are further evolved, um, are willing to put money in? Hearing a lot of VCs saying they prefer late stage deals, but we're also seeing more companies shut down and mm -hmm. closed uh, now than just anecdotally that we've seen in, in a long time. How much is financing risk an issue for you guys, particularly now that you guys have a track record and you've been doing this for a long time and you're extremely respected in this industry? So we've changed our tactics around around uh, financing. We're, you know, we're tending to do larger syndicates in the, in the Series A so that we do have the wherewithal to, with the existing syndicate, to get the companies through the difficult, you know, B and C rounds if need be. Uh, we're also going to the strategics earlier, um, you know, with, uh, with Ardian as, as an example. You know, Medtronic did a, a $47 million round, put $30 million in at $200 million pre uh, to lead the Series C. That would have been a financing with VCs. We probably would have been lucky to get done at, at $50 million pre. So uh, it was, you know, a great non-dilutive source of financing. Uh, we didn't give up any material rights. And it allowed the company, allowed Medtronic to really get to know the technology, the clinical results, the team. And, and um, at the end of the day, I think Medtronic is going to be the winner uh, with Artie. And I think they will look back on it and say that was a great uh, investment to acquire Artie. Anybody else have a comment about the current financing situation? Again, if anybody brings a track record to you guys, does does. Is it a lot easier for you guys now in the last two years than it was in 2006? No, I think it's I think it's harder than ever. I think we've we've mentioned that as well, and and you know every one of them stands on their own, um, and uh, you know we're we were we're in situations where you start to do head into a financing, and people want to see X, uh, you know they want to see an approval. Um, you bridge the company to an approval, and all of a sudden they want to see revenue ramp. So um, you know it's it is. Um, just sort of the, the moving milestone. Everyone stands on their own. Uh, they they may be more w willing to take a phone call from us uh, or to let us, uh, you know, darken their their conference room <laughs> table. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's just fighting the battles through the diligence and proving that the value that we think is there is there for for every deal individually. So we're right. I'm sorry, go ahead. David. I think it's a really challenging climate, obviously, for a lot of people. But I think that that there's going to be a time period here where people create new models for building businesses uh, that are venture funded. And during this period, um, I think it's going to continue to be pretty challenging for the startups. I think we'll end up at some point in time where things stabilize there, where the number of venture firms stabilizes, the number of uh, startups stabilizes, and the new model or models 
uh, emerge. We will figure out ways. That's one of the things that you do as an entrepreneur is figure out how to react to the environment. I think that's what will happen. But it's years off before things stabilize and the financing climate gets better. And the demand from the large med tech companies continues so that there's no lack of demand for good companies. And the survivors that are able to hit their milestones and keep funded are going to be very well positioned. And yeah, there'd be better years. days ahead for those companies. You probably could have taken already in public. Was there any temptation? <laughs> You've taken one company public. Any temptation to do that again? I've been a public company CEO, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're right up against time here, and I want to give uh, just a couple minutes for questions. So let me ask one final question. You guys have been at it for a dozen years now. Your roles have changed. Your, where you are in your lives have changed. Can you do this forever? Do you see an end to the foundry? Or? If our technologies are successful, we'll do it forever. <laughs> Hanson? Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine uh, many things more fun than trying to invent and create and, and, and build companies. And uh, the, it'd be nice to adjust the pace a little bit, but uh, I'd be very happy if I can keep doing this for many years. Great. Mark? Uh, I just always joke around that I've been doing this so long in this, in this very strange corner of our industry that uh, I'm unfit for assimilation back into the general population. So <laughs> I don't think I could do anything other than this. Well, great. Well, let's thank these guys. I mean, you guys, we have, I think all of you are huge debt. If you have a question and want to move to the, uh, to the microphone, we'll take one or two. David, could I make a comment sure. before, just while they're getting to the microphones? And I think I'd like to thank, I think all, all of us have talked about this and think about it, but I'd like to thank the guys that have gone, people that have gone before us. I think we've really been lucky and blessed to know people closely like Tom Fogarty and, and Paul Yock and, uh, you know, Fred St. Gore and John Simpson. And we're lucky enough to have experienced these guys early in our career uh, and learned a lot from them. And I think without that model and without that tutelage, we, we wouldn't be anywhere. So Great. Anybody a have a question? There. Here's one right here. You can stand. Well, I'll repeat it. I'll try to repeat it as long as it's coherent. So were there any turning points in your career that led you in the path that got you to the foundry? Maybe you all winding up on DVI's doorstep at some point. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that might have been it. You know, it was, you know, early on I thought that maybe you could create an incubator with people like Tom, Paul, and John all in one place. Um, you know, I think that was part of where the light bulb went off for me is, is watching these folks uh, create their entities. That may have been the turning point for me, but it took me many years to turn around and come up with the idea of the foundry. We've, we've been the beneficiary of great mentors. You know, for me, it was John Simpson giving me the opportunity to, to run per close uh, and, you know, the opportunity to work with Alan at, at DVI, Tom Fogarty, you know, Paul Yock, Casey McGlynn. You know, there's a whole host of people that along the way were our, our mentors and, and um, helped us and, and taught us. And uh, I think that was the single biggest thing that changed my career. Yeah, exactly. I'd echo that. Great. Any other questions from the audience? If not, thank you guys very much. There's a reception right outside, and uh, it's been great hearing the story. Thank you. <laughs>